You're listening to the EdUp Experience, where we make education your business. This episode is again sponsored by our friends at Inspirio Enterprises. Inspirio helps schools increase enrollments through innovative and cutting-edge marketing and admissions tactics. For more information, please visit inspirio.com edup for offers exclusively for EdUp listeners. Our guest on this episode is Liz McMillan, executive editor at the Chronicle of Higher Education and the leader of Chronicle Intelligence. Liz has worked with the Chronicle for over 30 years, helping to bring you the information about higher ed that you need to keep up to date and make better decisions for your faculty and students. Can't wait to talk to Liz. Now let's get to it. Welcome back, everybody. This is Elvin Freitas. This is Joe Salustio. This is Elizabeth Liba. And on the line, we have Liz McMillan. Liz, how you doing? I'm doing really well. How are you all? Oh, hanging in there, hanging in there. Yeah, thank Mm. you. So, you know, right now we're recording. We're still going through COVID-19. So first of all, how are you? How's your family, your loved ones? How's everyone? Where are you? And how's everything over there? Well, thanks for asking. Um, I am based in Arlington, Virginia. The Chronicle offices are in uh, Washington, D.C., and uh, I'm here with my husband and a uh, 11-month-old puppy, <clears throat> which uh, presents some interesting challenges for uh, <laughs> keeping him busy. Um, but we're well. Uh, we're adapting like everybody else at this point, yeah. which is, you um, know, in fits and starts. <clears throat> Gotcha. Okay. Um, so thanks for your time. We appreciate it. We're so happy to be talking to you. Uh, so I want to dive right in and ask you my first question. Um, I've been thinking about this since, you know, we, we said we were going to talk to you. Tell us, Liz, what's going on uh, out there that maybe it's not being talked about as much or written about as much that you're hearing. I know you have access to a lot of different leaders within higher education. So is there a certain topic out there that you feel uh, these leaders are thinking about maybe whispering to each other and not really talking about it, or writing about it out, you know, in the public. Um, or is there something that uh, an area where you think it should be highlighted based on you know your experience so far during all this uh, uh, crisis? That's a really interesting question. Uh, I think that what we've seen in the past uh, two months is this emergency move to online, or what some people call remote learning. Uh, you know, it's it's happened very quickly. It's been out of necessity. It's not the way anybody would have wanted to launch a fully coherent and comprehensive online platform. So, of course, this is not always a satisfying uh, experience for both students and faculty. And I, you know, every indication is that faculty across the country, across the world, are, are working so hard and so creatively to make the best of this semester. But this is not, um, I I think we need to pause and say what's been happening this semester is not really fully representative of what online learning can be. Um, I I think there are plenty of experts and uh, people within the academy who appreciate that fact, but I don't know if the public understands that. And so you're seeing a lot of um, reluctance and reticence, perhaps, to commit to a semester, another semester that could be fully online. Um, And I'm not sure that this past spring is a really good indication of what that might be. 
Gotcha. As, as, uh, as uh, Elizabeth Leibel would say, you're speaking my language, uh, Lynn. Um, <laughs> that's right. That's her, uh, we, that's her catchphrase. Um, and, and, you know, I'm um, an advocate for online education and, and uh, you know, to what you're saying about, um, you know, there's, there's certainly a difference between pure um, designed and intentional online education versus a swift move to remote learning. There's a big difference. And I think that's something right. that's, um, you know, I, uh, it's being recognized, but probably not at the level it needs to for the public to understand it. So I'm, I'm with you on that. Mm-hmm. Well, let's um, quickly take a step back. You're the executive editor of Chronicle Intelligence. Can you um, can you tell us about Chronicle Intelligence and what that is, um, you know, w- what your role is specifically so our listeners can get a sense of, of the scope of your role? Sure, I'm happy to. Um, so for... Uh, Seven years, I was the top editor at the Chronicle, which means that I, I ran the uh, entire newsroom. And what we started to find um, a few years ago, we have a, a daily news report, we have a weekly print edition. We were finding that uh, people wanted other ways of consuming information and resources. And so about two years ago, I um, left the, the newsroom, although that's a semantic point because this is still part of the newsroom. I left the editor position to create a new division called Chronicle Intelligence, which is really trying to serve uh, the vast higher education audience in new ways with new products outside of our conventional news streams. So uh, for a number of months now, we've been going uh, and producing really in-depth reports on issues that we know are of critical importance to our readership. Uh, for example, student success, um, and we take a reporter, a highly respected reporter, and just have that person go really deep on an issue and come up with some really practical solutions and ideas that colleges can model after. That's one way we've been doing this. Um, The other big way that's just really, really accelerated in the last few weeks is we have developed uh, a full line of virtual events, uh, taking advantage of our newsroom experts and uh, really trying to meet the need of audiences right now to have in the moment information. It's really, really <clears throat> interesting to see how you know you you think about all the, the campuses around the country and how eager and hungry they are to understand what are, what are other campuses doing? What are they trying? What can we learn? How are they serving um, disadvantaged students at this particular time? What can I learn? So in the past, since gosh, March 13th, I believe was the first time, the first event we had, we've had more than 40 events, um, uh, usually attracting anywhere from 1,500 to 3,000 people at a time. Um, and we're really finding that um, this is a way to take our journalism live. It's not, uh, you know, always what reporters have been trained to do, right? They're trained to write and to work with uh, the written word. But uh, they've made a great transition uh, to um, convening conversations. And uh, we're finding that um, there's just a tremendous need, and we're very, very, very happy to be able to step in and help people out. That's amazing. And, and it's, it's funny in, uh, you know, uh, at least for me, um, virtual events um, are, I think, important to keep connected right now, you know, mm-hmm. and I think that whether it's Zoom or 
it's funny because I, and, and I joke, like I'm getting zoomed out a little bit. I don't know about you guys, but um, <laughs> I'm going back to the phone. Fu- I'm going back to the phone going, Oh man, it's nice to have a voice to just the phone conversation yeah. without watching myself on video and whether I, you know, got my hands on my face and freaking everybody <laughs> out about touching my eyes. <laughs> Uh, but uh, um, so so that sort of leads me to, to my next question, because, uh, I, you know, I think the obvious question is, you know, the effect of COVID-19 on what's going to happen with higher education in the future. And I don't even know if we need to ask that directly to you, because I think that's the the under it's underpinning everything else. But how you know, I, I guess the question I have from your from the information that you're sort of collating and, and have availability for um, is. It, how worried are schools about students and the students, uh, their access to technology, their, um, this concept of a gap year, which, you know, maybe, maybe that's a good place to start because this, you know, is sort of a growing trend. It's being written about and discussed more that, you know, uh, undergrads are going to think about taking a gap year and, you know, that may be significant, um, obviously to the school and its ability to do, uh, generate tuition revenue. But what does that mean for the person's future, the student's future going forward? When you take a year off, do you ever come back? And there's all these thoughts that, that are happening. What are you hearing out there when you hear schools talking and, you know, getting together on these conferences about, about this concept of a gap year and, and student accessibility um, as they move forward? Yeah, uh, that's a really, really big concern. And I, I think it really depends on where you're situated in the higher ed ecosystem. If you're an Ivy or a highly selective institution, you're probably going to weather the next year or so um, if a certain percentage of your students don't want to be on campus and want to take a gap year. If you are a small college that is uh, entirely tuition dependent, you might be rurally located, um, you might not have endowments or uh, reserves that you could really draw on. Um, even a 5% decline in your enrollment class is going to make a huge difference uh, to your financial health. So uh, there are a lot of institutions. There are probably several hundred uh, institutions that are financially vulnerable right now. Um, Typically, they are, um, as I said, private colleges. They have small enrollments of 1,500 or fewer. They don't have sizable endowments. Uh, The other stressed institution that we hear a lot about are the regional publics, not the big flagships like the University of Michigan, although that campus alone is projecting up to a billion dollar loss this just right. this year. So um, some of the, the uh, regionally located campuses where the state support has really declined, they don't have a whole lot of fundraising going on, they certainly don't have a big endowment. Um, those those types of institutions, I think, are really worried, um, and we're certainly seeing that. People talk about this as a as a ex- existential threat to those institutions. So, um, you know, they they're paying a lot of attention. There are a lot of surveys coming out of what students are interested in and what they think they're going to do about the fall and. Um, are they willing to pay high tuition for what it may be largely online or hybrid experience? Uh, typically not. Right. So I think uh, they, these leaders have a right to be worried about that. Thank you very much. And I'll pass it to our Liz. For her. <laughs> <laughs> Liz point up. So I'm always thinking about um, the, the faculty role and how that affects the whole student experience. So from, your experience from what you're hearing as far as schools 
reporting their experiences and, and what they're going through. How is the role of faculty? We talked about initially, Elvin asked you about the difference between online learning and remote learning, and Joe has always been an advocate for making sure that that difference is highlighted. How is all that going to play into how, how these institutions are going to better serve the students? Because it seems as though a lot of what we're hearing from the articles and the stats and the surveys is that students don't feel comfortable with what's happening in terms of the classes that have been pushed, pushed online. These are typically campus-based classes that we all know we had to hurry up and put them online so that we could keep our students safe. But how is that playing into the idea of the gap year? What can colleges and universities do better so that they can meet the needs of students and make sure that students are served to the best of their ability? I don't know if that's really a, something that could be answered in a, a pat just response, but what are you hearing and, and what, as higher, higher education institutions, what can we do better to make sure that we are um, reassuring our students and reassuring the parents that we're able to meet their needs going into the fall? Yeah, I, I, one idea that I'm hearing about is the idea that the faculty member is no longer operating on his or her own. <clears throat> they have to be mm. part of a team of gotcha. student support specialists, whether it's um, mental health counseling, whether it's advising, mm. whether it's um, you know, any number of ways that um, the faculty member has to be connected and, and mm. supporting that student. So it's not just a, um, you know, single person at the, on, on the other side of a screen or, or perhaps even at the front of a classroom in some cases. There's going to be a need for much better integration of what's happening in the classroom um, and, and the vast array of services to support students right now. Um, this is incredibly stressful uh, for everybody, but certainly mm -hmm. for students. And a lot of the things that students go to college for, the residential experience, the togetherness, the rituals, those have been taken away. Um, that, that just creates this big um, gap for them. Uh, it's just not the college experience in addition to all the uncertainty and stress. So I think that the smart places will be connecting their faculty in a much more integrated way to the student success, what, what, what we think of as the broad student success apparatus at every institution. And again, um, you know, it depends on the kind of institution you're at. If you're at a certain kind of community college or a, a college that serves a lot of disadvantaged students, you really have to step these efforts up. Um, mm -hmm. Otherwise, um, you're going to lose those students, and they won't be coming back. I mean, there's already, um, I think, a pretty deep concern that uh, students who are um, homeless or who have lost their, their regular jobs or have food insecurity issues or, or who are parents themselves, those, those students might not come back. That's so true. But then how do we educate faculty? And you guys do an awesome job because you're always pumping out such great articles and, and giving us the, 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 the proper context for that. But how do we get over that pushback for faculty that are like, hey, that's not my, I'm, I'm an SAE, yeah. like I'm a subject matter expert. I'm not a mental health mm -hmm. counselor. Like I can't deal with that type of stuff. Like how do we get around that to kind of make it more of an integrated, holistic process? That's something that I've always wondered. 
one of the things that I've I've seen either you know through social media or through some of the articles that they've written for us, I've seen faculty say, you know, I used to not make an exception for this sort of thing, or mm-hmm. I would be. I often thought I I found myself being kind of inflexible. Mm-hmm. Uh, you might have heard about the student at the University of Maryland who. Uh, lost her father to COVID, and the professor mm-hmm. was still insisting that she, I believe it was she, return the class assignment on time. Um, uh, yeah. I, yeah. You know, I, I think flexibility and compassion uh, for the circumstances that students are mm-hmm. in, I think you see more, much more talk about that. Um, and, and, of course, the whole, you know, move to pass-fail and the different assessments uh, for this semester, what, how long will that continue? I think that um, there's been some, uh, you know, eye-opening among faculty that uh, this might be the better direction for them to go in, and even in the long term. I think it's a, a we're all in this together thing. I, I was a first-gen student. Right. I came from reasonably what could be considered an urban area and disadvantaged. You know, I went to a predominantly minority high school. So I think sometimes depending on where the faculty member may have come from, and, it, you know, everyone comes from different backgrounds, so it's no fault of that faculty member. Maybe they might not understand a student that's like, hey, I don't have food or I had my light bill to pay, so I'm, I was so stressed or I didn't have childcare. Now we're all going through that. We're all going right. to the grocery store and fighting for toilet paper and doing right. things that we never thought we'd, we'd have to do. So I think maybe it gives some of these faculty members a little bit more context when they have a student that's like struggling and say, I was stressed. I just couldn't get the assignment right. in. And we're like, I was stressed too. I couldn't get my grades turned in because I'm so overwhelmed right now. So I, I do definitely agree that there's been a lot more attention to the mental health aspects and a lot more flexibility or even understanding on the part of faculty that may not have had the context previously to this. And especially those faculty who are parents and who are juggling mm-hmm. that as well. Um, sure. I think that's that's a, a, a real humbling experience Absolutely. Uh, to think about your own students who are parents and who might be trying to work and juggle all of mm-hmm. that. So, um, yeah, I think I think the idea, yeah, we're in this together. You hope that that's uh, that's sinking in. Let me ask. A, let me jump in right there because that this is a really interesting. Uh, paradigm to sort of talk about because you know I, I I like to think and I think all of us would like to think that the, we're in this together um, uh, uh, mental state is is really the dominant one and I'm say and but to that and the end about is you know there is this institutional survival um, you know piece that institutions have to be focused on and and you know how Liz, how is there a recognition in general of the fact that the students' choices have now just been exponentially uh, increased, right? Mm-hmm. Um, where, you know, perhaps they were attending an on-ground institution in some regional area. Now every school across the country has some form or should be. I hope they do. I hope we have institutions that just don't go right back to what they were doing without some form of risk manager for online at the very least. But now you can take classes at any institution across the country potentially. Um, is there a, a competitive uh, air, maybe it's unspoken or spoken, where it's like, okay, we're already worried about the students that we have. We're worried about finding more students, but now the student that lives 20 miles away that would have normally come here could go to a school 3,200 miles away. 
um, with the same online courses. Is that being spoken about, recognized, not recognized, the sort of the student consumer now has a more dominant level of buying power than ever before? Yeah, I mean, I think that's there's a recognition that students are in the uh, the uh, buyer's seat for the first time in uh, quite some time, right? So, um, I, I, you're probably aware also that there's been a change in the regulations for how colleges can recruit students. Yeah. So uh, this just happened this past spring. It was uh, the admissions, the main admissions body, which. Uh, decided that colleges could continue to recruit students even after they've committed to another college, right. which previously was never, never, it was, it was not allowed. It was looked down upon. So you think about, um, uh, you know, students not wanting to go far, not wanting to go to New York City, not wanting to go to places where they feel unsafe. And uh, there's a local college, there's a community college in the community, um, you know, how will, how will those colleges perhaps turn to their own regions and try to double down on recruiting those kids and hoping that they'll stay there? So I, I, don't, I don't think that there is a sort of competitive air necessarily among the colleges uh, as far as that goes, but there's clearly a recognition that when it's all said and done, who knows what it's going to look like in September for students? Will will many of them stay away? Will many of them stay nearby? A lot of them are indicating that they would prefer to stay closer to home. But I, I just, you know, I don't know if anybody knows how this is going to shake out. Um, I think it's it would be kind of unseemly for some colleges to take a competitive air about this right now. I think that the the point that everybody is trying to emphasize is how can we support students in this really, really difficult moment, uh, whether they're an incoming freshman or a, 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 a rising senior. So the focus has really, really, I think, uh, shifted to helping students, which is a good thing. That is a good thing. Yeah. And if, if and, and Elizabeth, go ahead, Joe. You go, Liz. Oh, I was going to say, if they're not competitive, and, and maybe you have a follow-up question after this one, Joe, but if they're not competitive, we've heard other rumblings about maybe schools becoming more collaborative, where they yeah. share resources and maybe kind of come together, not necessarily a merger per se, but, hey, I have this program or I have this resource. Let's all share this resource so that, you know, it's kind of like bad boys, you know, we ride together, we die together, let's try to help each other so that we can all kind of keep our head above water and, and, and still meet our, our goals of maintaining and retaining our students. Is that something that you see as maybe I'm, um, absolutely. a model? I'm, I'm seeing a lot of talk about that, a lot of desire that colleges do collaborate more. Um, you know, and that, that there's a huge array from everything to a, a merger of institutions to sharing of resources and sharing of uh, services and sharing courses. Um, there's, you know, typically been a, a, a kind of resistance to that in the past, mm -hmm. but this particular moment, I think, has really um, opened up a desire for more of that. And, and let's see what's going to happen over the next year to 18 months, if there will be real sort of movement on that front, or if it's, mm -hmm. again, the sort of thing, uh, you know, the whole stereotype is that, you know, I'd rather put a gun to my head than collaborate with the, the college down the street. You know? right. 
Um, so let's see what actually comes out of this. But I'm certainly hearing more talk about it than ever before. Interesting. Well, and it's tough in those situations to, you know, I think that resistance there generally is, is always comes down to revenue, how you share it and who recognizes it and how you, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, you know, I think this has prompted a number of, of conversations around, okay, we still have to take care of the student. And, and to your point was hopefully, um, hopefully the air isn't so competitive as it is collaborative that we take student. You know, I, I just think about a gap year. I just hate that for, for people, although it may be a good thing now. When you think about how hard it is to continue with your education when you have any type mm-hmm. of interruption and mm-hmm. what that does to the number of students who just don't go and complete. And it's, I mean, we don't know what could happen, but the numbers could truly be staggering in, the, in that context. Um, and, and, you know, I don't know if anybody's really giving thought to, you know, to that. I mean, I'm sure there are, but you just think about the mental effects of, of of taking a gap year, maybe going to work somehow and then dropping off and going right back to your college that, you know, the, the change of life is, is, is crazy um, to think about. Well, I'm I mean, rambling I think, a little bit. Well, the one question I would have, even though there is a lot of talk about gap year and, you know, in the past, there are different things that you could have done with that, right? You could have mm-hmm. gone and volunteered, you could have gone overseas, right. you could have, um, gone and taught English somewhere or worked or or done a variety of things, a lot of those opportunities are not going to be available to students. And even if they were, there may be reluctance on the part of families and parents to send uh, students into a situation, you know, that's uncertain and where, especially if if the virus keeps, you know, the different scenarios of how it might keep, keep coming back in different areas and having successive lockdowns. So um, what are you going to do on a gap year under those circumstances? So I, that's why I'm, you know, really wondering when it comes to, you know, uh, that, that first day of matriculation, what's going to really happen? Will they stay away or will they, will they enroll? Right. I guess that's the question, too, because when it comes to the, comp- the competitive aspects of it that you alluded to, Joe, I think some of it – has to do with, and, and there is now that there's a pandemic, obviously it does seem unseemly for us to all the schools be scrambling, but I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that, that all the doom and gloom predictions about there's not enough students and the, the ROI on education and the debt, and then schools are all like, wow, we're all scrambling for the same students. I mean, what is it? I guess the big question for all of us is come fall, will there be enough students to go around and what does that mean for the future of higher education? We've seen all of the articles and the predictions that, you know, up to 50% of schools, especially the smaller schools, may be closing or or at risk of financial um, closure or or, um, just not being able to keep their doors open. So is that something that you guys have seen in terms of some statistics or, or something that's a little bit more concrete than some of the things that we're seeing? Are you talking about just the 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 uh, number of colleges that could be vulnerable to closing? Yeah, just, just what does that look like? Is is there anything that would well, be you know, a little bit I, more concrete as far as the numbers? I think the uh, there's a well-respected researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, Bob Zemsky, and his co-authors who uh, did an uh, interview with the Chronicle a few weeks ago. Um, they've 
he's revised um, his numbers of vulnerable institutions to uh, something like 20% of colleges could be at risk of closure now that we're into this pandemic. I think going into it, some of the research that he and his researchers did for a book that came out in February, which seems like a lifetime ago, um, it was it was about 10% uh, he was concerned given given the vulnerability right now and the enrollment projections that you're talking about, which um, you know, everybody's talking about the enrollment cliff that happens at around 2025, 2026, about six, five, six years from now. Um, you know, that's, everybody was trying to figure out how to prepare for that particular moment. Um, you know, and then that dates back to the recession, to the great recession, 2008, nine, when um, people just didn't have kids and so you have this big birth surf 18 years later. Um, now, in addition to having to deal with that projection, they've got to deal with the uncertainty. The colleges have to deal with uncertainty right now of how many, how many students are actually going to show up this, this fall. So, you know, it, it's, it's a real shock to the system, uh, what, what this pandemic and what it's doing to higher ed, and it's unprecedented. The interesting thing, thing there too, uh, Liz, is uh, all of our predictors are in flux. Right? I mean, colleges look at a number of predictors, like deposits or a number of admitted students or mm -hmm. registering for housing or orientation or all of these areas of prediction, the, you know, a deadline. And all of those are just completely upside down at this point. Right. So, I mean, the effect that that has on a, on a university's operations when you're thinking about salaries and staffing and appropriate right-sizing, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of good people lose their jobs uh, within mm -hmm. our industry, I think with any industry, and, and that's certainly concerning. So, you know, here's here's sort of the golden question for you is, is can you tell our um, audience what Chronicle Intelligence can do um, to help them? You know, what, what can you offer from Chronicle Intelligence that helps schools understand, come up to date, um, uh, to help them navigate through this, uh, through this crisis? Yeah, I mean, I think what we are trying to do is, you know, there's a huge array of subjects you could uh, write about and, and, and cover within higher education. We are trying to stay laser focused on the issues, the resources, the tools that colleges are going to need to navigate through this. And what are some of those things? Well, um, we've had a uh, really productive conversation in the last four weeks about um, how you think about strategy in this particular moment. You know, everybody, um, not everybody, but some institutions tend to panic and make across-the-board cuts, and they don't really react strategically to a moment like this that puts the entire institutional financial health under strain. And so there are things you can do. There are analyses that you can be doing to try to position yourself to be stronger um, as, as we come out of this uh, pandemic. So we are really trying to stay focused on um, what can higher education do to come out of this in a, a more sustainable and more equitable position than it was perhaps a year or two or so ago. Um, and all of the different tools and resources that we can gather to help those institutions, that's what we're committed to. Um, you know, when you think about strategies, what's the 
uh, we've been talking about this retention. It's one of the most important things. It was it was hugely important before the pandemic. It's even more important right now. So, uh, what are colleges trying? And it's not like we have data to say, gosh, you know, this college did X, Y, and Z, and they were able to, uh, you know, bring back 80% of their students to campus this fall. We don't have data, but we do have we do have good ideas. We do have practices that and emerging model, models that colleges are trying. So uh, we're we're all about um, solutions and ideas that can really equip colleges. So that's it's a different um, it's a different definition. I mean, the Chronicle has always been a leader in publishing news and essential information about the sector. What we are trying to do in Chronicle Intelligence is to be a, a, a much more broadly defined resource. Um, and we just feel that the need is huge right now, and the kind Agreed. of response and reaction we get to, um, for example, the sorts of events we've just put on, um, one of the most um, uh, powerful conversations we had about three weeks ago was about um, disadvantaged students and how to how to how are we going to fix the inequities in the system? And we had uh, Tony Jack from Harvard and Sarah Goldrick-Rob, who are two uh, really powerful advocates for vulnerable students, and uh, talking about strategies that colleges can do to help uh, especially poor students. It was an incredible response, uh, and, and I felt like we were, really, we were really providing something that could help colleges in this particular moment. And if I'm the school president, Liz, and, I, and right now I'm salivating over the, the, the possibility of joining one of these virtual conferences, am I, am I invited or is it, uh, is it something I register for or should I contact uh, uh, you at Chronicle Intelligence with my information to, to have an opportunity to be part of it? Absolutely. These are, these are free events. Um, we typically have information on our website, but uh, anyone could contact me. We are uh, pretty much, gosh, we're running one almost every, one a day at this point. Uh, we're, we're looking at, at at later this month, uh, one a day in June. So uh, there's a big appetite for it. I'd be happy to provide any information to folks. That's fantastic, Liz. This is Elvin again. We'll make sure to put your information in the uh, show notes uh, of this sure. episode. So thank you so much uh, for all of you, uh, your time. And I have just last two questions I'd like to ask all our guests. Uh, first question is, um, what would you like to be remembered for? It can be personal, uh, professional, whatever you prefer. And the last question, what does the future of education look like to you? Oh, boy. Wow. <laughs> Those are good questions. Um, I'd like to be remembered as uh, being kind and uh in my professional life, uh, providing an essential and indispensable service to a, a sector that I think is hugely, hugely valuable to the, to the country, to the world. And what do I think the future of looks like? Wow. Um, boy, if I had an answer to that, uh, I would be, I would really be in business. I, I, I'm worried. I'm worried about the sector. I think it's, um, it was already under strain. This is, as I said, a huge shock to the system. I'm worried that we're going to continue to see a kind of bifurcation of very, very wealthy institutions, very disadvantaged students, and a hollowing out of the middle. Uh, sorry, disadvantaged students that um, 
sorry, disadvantaged institutions that struggle to serve those populations um, and, and dwindling in number, right? So I'm, I'm just worried that there's uh, the same thing that's happening in broader society is happening to mm. higher ed- institutions as well. Yeah, totally. Yeah, totally. I think we agree with you. Yeah, yeah. a lot of people would agree with that sentiment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Liz, again, thank you so much for your time. You have been an amazing guest. We really appreciate mm-hmm. being on the EdUp Experience. Thank you so much. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. So there you have it, our conversation with Liz McMillan. Joe, Liz, what do you guys think? Joe, you go first this time. I feel like you always pick yeah. up and go first. Now you go first. Yeah, Joe, go first so I can think. <laughs> I, like to, I, like to piggyback. I like to piggyback off of Liz because she always does such great stuff. But okay, fine. Um, uh, uh, um, you know, for, first of all, the big takeaway for me is is uh, if I'm not joining, if, if you're not joining the virtual events that are being uh, held, uh, do it. Um, it sounds like there's a tremendous amount of information there and that Chronicle Intelligence is putting together some pretty awesome, uh, you know, uh, events for everybody to exchange ideas and, and the, the, around the collaborative nature of, of we're all in this together. And then, you know, the, the other thing that stands out and the other takeaway, and I think this is something that we have had a number of guests talk about, but she really sort of summed it up in a nice way, um, not a nice way, but in a succinct way, is the hollowing out of the middle of higher ed and we're watching that happen there's been since you know every week that we record this podcast there is another school that closes and Mm -hmm. um you know it's it's going to continue to happen as that middle uh, continues to be hollowed out so i mean big takeaways there i mean she's getting a ton of information she has access to a ton of information and she seems really willing to help which uh you know i have such respect for people that are that are creating those shared resources for for all of the institutions within higher ed to access so that's my take Liz. Mm-hmm. I I agree with you. I liked what she said towards the end there of the conversation when she talked about the fact that their role, the Chronicle of Higher Education, which we've all obviously seen and when we use them as a resource, and, and they've gone, they've evolved a little bit from kind of being an observer and just watching and, and kind of documenting. And rather than just doing that, they're looking at how they can be involved and how they can provide more resources. And obviously, they've always done that in terms of providing the information, but maybe being a little bit more concrete in terms of actually hosting events or, or, or providing these resources in a way that colleges and universities can access them a little bit easier in, in a little bit more in a practical way to be able to um, deploy these resources. So I really like the idea of doing that, and I, and I like the idea... Um, that she talked about this concept of the faculty member not being an island, you know, like just observing the students and and having to be a part of a a bigger team and and connecting with students and making sure that they have these mental health and emotional support and all the other support mechanisms in place and that the faculty member is obviously always going to be the front line um, resource for the student, but pairing up with other student support services on campus to make sure that the student gets the support that they need during this critical time. So I, I definitely feel like that's a big takeaway for colleges and universities that sometimes they kind of feel like, well, the faculty job, and I've always kind of heard that myself being a faculty member for so long. My job is to teach students and give them information. My job is not to support or, and that's kind of like been the, the not that that's my philosophy, obviously, but that's always been something that has been kind of, uh, the, the, the line, the company line for faculty, and that's not something that is going to work moving forward with this um, pandemic and everything that's going on. And, and with the special circumstances of students, we have to be more collaborative 
in higher education as institutions if we're going to help our students be successful and retain our students. So Good big takeaway there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's true. I think for me, I love the, I love the question she asked. What are you gonna do during a gap year now? <laughs> like, where are yeah. you gonna go? What are you gonna do? You can't go anywhere. You can't interact Good with question. people. What are you going to do? I think it's a fantastic question. I think it's something that, you know, uh, administrators need to prepare to have that conversation with students. It's like you need to set up a, a training now. You need to kind of focus on okay, well, what are we gonna say when I say, you know what, I'm thinking of taking okay, okay, so how are you gonna convince them to not take a gap year? What are you gonna what are you gonna tell them? Say, well you should stay with us because of XYZ. Well what is that XYZ? You know, I think that's a huge takeaway now. So if I'm sitting there and, you know, I'm, I'm working at a college university and I have this conversation with a prospective student or a continuing student saying, um I think I want to take a gap year. What's going to be my response? You know, so I think it's time to you know set up your strategy, get up a training going. You know, like think ahead, get get it going now. So that way, when you do have that conversation, you know what you're going to say, and you know what, um, you know, everybody's saying the same thing. Everybody's on message, and everyone's on point. And I think it's a huge takeaway for me right now. So I think it was very, very practical, and I really appreciated that. But great uh, interview, another one, fantastic. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, Liz and Liz McMillan. Thank you so much. All right, everybody. Uh, thanks again for listening. We really appreciate your support. Uh, stay strong. And until next time. Hope you enjoyed that episode. To learn more about the EdUp experience, please visit edupexperience.com. That's edupexperience.com. And please feel free to rate, review, subscribe, and share this episode. We really, really appreciate your support. You've been listening to The EdUp Experience, where we make education your business with your hosts, Joe Salustio, Elizabeth Leiber, and Elvin Freitas. <laughs>